We'd like to welcome you to another edition of the Question and Answer program with our Bible teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. And though he's no longer with us, we continue to air his responses for the benefit of present and future generations that long to grow and mature in their faith. Let's begin today with a question from a listener in Canton, Ohio. She writes, Could you please speak on the biblical perspective of the women's liberation movement? Well, very frankly, today... The pulpit is silent on many issues. As someone has said, silence is golden, but sometimes it's yellow. And I'm afraid that this new attitude that we should not raise controversial subjects and we should talk about sunshine and flowers and beautiful scenery and all that sort of thing, well, that's fine. That's all good. But You and I live in a mean world today, and there are a lot of controversy, and there's a lot of difference of opinion, and Christians should speak out. I think it's a shame that the pulpit hasn't been just a little bit more positive on this matter of the homosexual issue. The Word of God is crystal clear relative to that. Now, unfortunately, the women's lib movement has got tied in to a group of liberals who also sponsor the homosexual cause because they believe in freedom in every area. And that, I think, is very unfortunate. I do not believe that any right-thinking woman can get involved in that type of thing today. And unfortunately, the civil rights movement has gotten involved in that. And that is something that I wish more of my black brethren would divorce themselves from these others, that you have no right to tie on to our issue, which is racial, and we have a just cause, and we are on a right basis. But we don't believe that the homosexual is on a right cause. We don't believe that this women's lib is on the right movement today under the liberal leadership that it has. So that today, the women's lib has divorced itself, apparently from all morality. It has sponsored abortion, sponsored freedom of the sexes, and sponsored all that sort of thing, which is definitely anti-Christian. And I think we should speak out against it. I don't think that the church should compromise today, and that we should speak out on these controversial issues. Now, as far as women's freedom is concerned, go to the lands today where the Bible is a closed book and it's forbidden and see the position of women. I was in Turkey. Did you know that out in the hinterland in the back country in Turkey today that women still wear a veil, that you see them working out in the fields and the men sitting around the soda pop places. We had a lot of fun with the women on our tour. I kidded them. I said, look, women, 
They're all out yonder in the field, the women doing the work. You women at home are having it too easy. You ought to start working more than you should. And at our last meeting, I kiddingly told the ladies that they would all be sent a short hole. In Turkey, they use a very short handle hole. And you're going to be sent a short handle hole so you can start working. Well, it was all done in fun, and we were kidding. But my friend, what is it that has brought liberty to womanhood to begin with? Well, it's been the Word of God. Now this movement has got itself divorced from the Word of God. And what is happening today to women? They're being raped as they've never been before. Where's their liberty? Women today are still a sex object. Never has sex been portrayed by beautiful women. Everything is sold today that way. Where is women's liberty today? May I say to you, it's going down the tube because only the Bible has ever given liberty to womanhood. And believe me, the Bible gives them a liberty and a freedom that they can find nowhere else. Therefore, any movement that divorces itself from the Word of God, as far as I'm concerned, I would be opposed to it. That would be my position concerning this. Our next question comes to us from a listener in Long Beach, California, who says, In Genesis 19, verse 8, Lot says that he had two daughters who had not known man. In verse 14, Lot went out to speak to his sons-in-law who married his daughters. Did Lot lie in verse 8? And who were these men? Well, I don't think Lot would appreciate very much you even suggesting that he lied about this because I'm sure that he did not. Those men at the doors were knocking about to tear the door down, and I don't think he lied to them at all. But had it ever occurred to you that Lot had a house full of daughters? He had some married. He had some single. Let me just say this. This type of a question, and I do not know the individual or your motive for asking it, but it would occur to me that you were looking for faults or errors in the Bible to bring up something like this because we ought to bring to the Bible the same kind of common sense that we use when we read other books. So many people read the Bible, even Christians, with the idea of trying to find something. And may I say to you, that kind of reading is not going to do you very much good as a Christian if that is the type of reading that you're doing. And then when you come to a passage like this and you think you found a contradiction in the Bible or that somebody lied, and the Bible does record the fact that certain individuals lied, Satan lied to man at the very beginning. In fact, the Bible says he's a liar and anything he says, you can't depend on him at all. But the thing to do is to try to come to a reasonable explanation of why the Bible says what it does. Now, it has so many very wonderful, miraculous things that it requires faith to believe them. Save your questions till you get there. I very frankly would say to you the thing that sometimes my 
wife says to me when I begin to question her about something, she says, picky, picky. And so I would say that you're really uh, looking for something, and I don't think it's there. We come now to a question from a listener in Buffalo, New York, who writes, I'm writing this in regards to your Bible study of 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. I'm so glad to hear some say that works must follow our profession of faith, or it was only a profession. So many people are being led to the Lord and nothing comes of it. When I go out in evangelism and I ask if they want to trust Christ as their personal Savior, I tell them that He must also be the Lord of their life. This, I explain, is a desire for Him to lead them. I have been disturbed by the preaching today which implies that people can be saved no matter what their life is like. What do you think about these issues? Well, may I say to you, there is certainly an element of truth in what you've written here, and I did put a great emphasis there that works must follow salvation. But I do think that when you're dealing with an individual relative to their salvation, that even the lordship of the Lord Jesus is not the important thing at that time. And that's one reason I believe that today that we are seeing so many so-called conversions that really are not conversions at all. And I think it's largely due to the way that the gospel has been presented to them. They have been told to trust Christ, but they've also told that they're to trust him and make him the Lord of their life. Now, when you're talking about salvation, let's talk about salvation, that works do not enter into it at all, and that we need to make it clear to the individual that they are a sinner that's lost and going to hell. Now, that's the thing that's not emphasized today. I think that until a person sees that he needs to be saved from something, that he just doesn't need a savior. It's when the individual feels that he's lost and that he's under great conviction because of his life. Now, after the individual is saved, then we talk about works. And that's what Paul was doing in 1 Thessalonians. And that's what I was attempting to do when I was teaching 1 Thessalonians. I attempted to make it very clear that when I'm talking about works, I'm not talking to any individual who hasn't been saved. And that that individual isn't just a church member, but that individual is saved, knows he's saved knows he's trusted Christ, knows he's resting on Christ as his Savior. Now, may I say to you, good works are to follow that, and good works are absolutely essential. Calvin put it like this, and I think I use the illustration. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. Saving faith automatically will produce good works. Now, a person that says that he can go on living in sin, then may I say to you, that person just hasn't been saved. 
we have to come to that conclusion. You say, well, you're judging. No, I'm not. I remember what the late Dr. Jim McGinley said. He says, I'm not a judge of folk that are professing Christians, but he says, I am a fruit inspector, and I expect to find the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those that have accepted Christ. And when you don't see the fruit there, you do have to come to the conclusion that the individual has not been converted. And when you talk about these people that have made a profession and that they go on living in sin, then may I say to you, there's only one conclusion you can come to. They weren't converted. They weren't converted. And just insist that you are, and continuing sin is in and of itself that which speaks very loud concerning you as if I may use another cliche that's used in the past a great deal. What you are speaks so loud, I can't hear what you say. So that individuals whose lives are not what they should be, and I have quite a few questions and letters of what's going on today in churches, and that's my question. What is going on today? This next question comes to us from a listener in Erie, Pennsylvania, who writes, I heard you say that all the activity occurring in the Middle East, and particularly in Israel, would not be interpreted as a fulfillment of prophecy, nor should it be considered as a sign of Christ's return. Now, I may have misunderstood what you were saying, but as a Bible-believing Christian, I most certainly believe in the imminent return of Christ. I don't believe we can ignore the multitude of signs. Do you? Now, let me say that if you believe that the return of Christ is imminent, and I would suggest that you look up in the dictionary the spelling of the word imminent, by the way. If you believe in the imminent coming of Christ, then that does not mean the soon coming, because the coming of Christ has been imminent for 1,900 years, but it hasn't been soon because it's 1,900 years has gone by. And you did not give me the prophecies that are being fulfilled relative to Israel at all. Now, I personally believe, as I indicated in our study, that I do think we are living in the last days, and I do think the coming of Christ. It's certainly nearer than when we first believed, and I would not want to lessen anyone's zeal and ardor in looking for the coming of Christ, but you talk about the multitude of signs. Well, may I say to you, we're not looking for signs. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. No sign given them. The great sign that we have today is the resurrection of Christ, and there's a living Savior at God's right hand that may come at any moment. Now, if I have to look for signs before he's coming, then I'm looking for signs and not looking for him. Let's not take our eye off of Christ today. And all of this sensational emphasis on signs, I think, has been entirely wrong because in the past it's been wrong. I have had 
friends in the ministry, great man, by the way, a man that I loved a great deal in Texas years ago. He says, why I'm going to live to the coming of Christ for the church. I know I'm going to be living because look at what's happening today. Well, he's been buried now for about 40 years. He didn't live to see it. And I don't think he should have made a statement like that. And I hear people make that kind of statement today. You bring the study of prophecy into disrepute, and you move over into that which is sensational. And prophecy, if you take it just as it is, is sensational enough. But there are those today that are actually using it, nothing in the world but promotion. Now, you go on, and I'm going to continue to read this letter. Our world, and even just our nation alone, has turned into a Sodom and Gomorrah before our very eyes. And you are certainly accurate in that. Israel plays the most important role in prophecy, and it is by Israel that we as Christians can gauge the signs. And that's absolutely not true. Israel is one group, and their prophecies concerning Israel do not relate to the church at all. That is one of the fallacies of the present time. I'm enclosing a leaflet from a wonderful Christian Bible teacher, and you tell me where he's from, and I'll not do that. It may indicate who it is. You may have heard of him or even know of his work. Well, I know him well. Now, you've sent me a little folder here that contains actually dates in it. And the very interesting thing is that in the program that is set out here, from 1974 to 1978, the Jewish temple would be rebuilt. And friends, they're not building the temple. (laughs) And there's no plan for them to build it. And it's this type of thing that brings prophecy into disrepute because people see this and say, well, look, this didn't come to pass. Well, it sure didn't come to pass because the Bible didn't say it. And That is my objection, this idea of setting dates and of attempting to bring it right down. Now, he may come before you even hear this broadcast. He could come before you hear this broadcast, but he may not come. And therefore, I'm not going to make a statement. The Lord will be here before you hear this broadcast because I don't know. And let's come back to your wonderful word you used at the beginning, imminent, the imminent coming of Christ. I believe in that. That means he could come, but he might not come. And if he doesn't, and I do not buy all of this sensationalism today of setting dates, no dates have ever been given to the church. Did you know that when it came into existence that Lord Jesus didn't say to his apostles, tarry in Jerusalem till the day of Pentecost, because on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is going to come. He didn't say that, but that's the way it worked out. He said, you tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And that coming was imminent. It could have happened before Pentecost, and the Lord would have been accurate. It could have happened even after Pentecost, and the Lord would have been accurate because he didn't name a date. When you're talking about the church, the church is made up of a heavenly people. 
and they do not run by the calendar that's on this earth today. Now, Israel does, and that's the reason you ought not to confuse the two, and it's done today, and frankly, I think it's very sad. Now for the last letter for today. This question's from a listener in Conowingo, Maryland. Hopefully I said that right. He writes, could you please explain Hebrews 10, verses 26 and 27? And I'll read those two verses. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. That's the end of the quotation that you ask for, Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. Now, I believe if you had read just two or three more verses, it would have explained itself to you. And that is always the danger of drawing out one or two verses. If you're having problem with them, put them back in the context and see what the writer's talking about. All right, now let me read these next two verses. Verse 28 says, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore a punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite under the Spirit of grace. Very frankly, this is a very frightful passage of Scripture here, and you should put it all together. In fact, it wouldn't hurt to continue reading, but I think we can arrive at the understanding of this. What does it mean to sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth? What is the truth? Well, the truth is what he mentions here about trotting underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherein he was sanctified an unholy thing. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ died for you. And you hear the gospel, that is, that he died for you, and that he rose again. To sin willfully means you've heard the gospel, and now you very definitely say no. I won't accept. Him. I reject him. What you're doing, you're trotting underfoot. The Son of God. Imagine God's given his Son to die for you. You turn your back on him. Well, you're actually walking on him, friend, because he did that for you, because he loved you, and he shed his blood for you. That means he paid the penalty for your sins, and you could trust him and be saved. But now if you sin willfully, after you've received this knowledge, there's nothing else God can do for you. There's no other sacrifice for sins. There's no other way of being saved. No man cometh to the Father but by the Son, the Lord Jesus said. He said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And Peter could say to that religious group, he said, There's none other name under heaven given whereby we might be saved. There's no other way. And so that is what you do here. And therefore, there's nothing ahead of you 
but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. So I said, well, I don't believe in hell. I don't believe in that. Maybe you don't. And you despise the Son of God. But friends, whether you believe it or not, the only thing ahead of you is hell. Somebody says, my, that's terrible. It sure is. It's an awful thing to reject Jesus Christ. There's no sin as great as the sin of rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, friend. And that's what he's talking about here. That's what this passage is all about. If you'd like to know more about Dr. McGee's position and understanding on the issue of losing salvation, then you'll want to check out his booklet, Is It Possible for a Saved Person Ever to be Lost? It's available for free download at ttb.org. In the booklet, he deals with Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, which are similar to the Hebrews chapter 10 passage that Dr. McGee discussed earlier. If you'd prefer to order a printed copy or any of our other study materials that cover a variety of issues, all of which can be used to assist you in your understanding of God's Word, you'll need to speak to one of our service operators or visit our online bookstore. Now, if you want to review what Dr. McGee said in one of his answers today, then you'll want to purchase a CD copy of the broadcast or you can go re-listen to it by streaming audio on our website or through one of our mobile apps. We'd like to remind you to listen to Dr. McGee on the Through the Bible radio program, which can be heard on this station every Monday through Friday. Notes and outlines are available for these studies when you call or write and let us know that you're interested. To contact our offices for any of our resources or to ask to be on our mailing list or to learn more about our ongoing ministry, call 1-800-65-BIBLE Monday through Thursday from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific Time or write to Questions and Answers in the U.S. Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. Or visit us online at ttb.org. Now we leave you with this prayer that God will answer all your questions and solve all your problems. Jesus, pay him all, to him I owe. This program has been brought to you by the faithful friends and supporters of the worldwide ministry of Through the Bible Radio Network. 